Uh, Last week, we began this Advent series looking at the gospel according to John. We said that John is unique in the gospel writers in that he, when he gives the origin story of Jesus, he doesn't just go back to Abraham, he doesn't just go back to uh, Adam, our first parent. He goes all the way back to before time began, and he said that Jesus existed before time as the Logos, as the Word. And so we, we considered together what it meant for the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, to have, a, have this, this name that is Word. So we were thinking about the being of Jesus. This week, uh, we're going to talk together about the mission of Jesus. In other words, why did Jesus become incarnate? Why did Jesus come into the world in the first place? Last week, it was one word, logos. This week, it's two words. We're going to just talk about two words, life and light. As, uh, as was just read a moment ago, it says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. What's going on in this, uh, this phrase? Well, that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at the relationship between these words as well. Because notice it does say that in him was life. And that life was the light of men. In other words, life first, then light. Or light depended on life. Because Jesus is life, there is light. And that's what we're going to try to figure out together this morning. So, Really quick introduction, we're going to dive right into each of these words. As you know from last week, uh, just because we're talking about two words, it doesn't mean it's going to be a short message. Um, But I will try to be very concise for you uh, this morning. First of all, let's, let's think about this word life. John says that in Jesus was life. And of course, the writing of the, uh, of the letter of, of the Gospel of John was meant to tell us that Jesus came into this world to give us something that we don't have. So it's safe for us to assume that when John says that in Jesus was life, there was, there was a life in Jesus that you and I are missing, that you and I don't have. And you might think to yourself, well, that's a little bit weird. I mean, I know I'm alive. My heart is pumping. My brain waves are obviously active. My body moves, maybe not as well as I'd like it to, but it is at least moving and and I have cognition, I can think. So if Descartes was right, if I think, therefore I am. So I must be alive. Well, sure, all of that is true. But even though you are alive, John is saying something about the nature of human beings. And he's saying that that Jesus came into the world because there there was a way in which we were not alive. We were spiritually not alive. We instead were spiritually dead. That's the kind of life that Jesus is bringing into the world. Now what on earth does that mean? That we are spiritually dead. Human beings outside of Jesus Christ are spiritually dead. I know we may be familiar with this idea, but we may not know what it actually means. Well, think of it this way. If if there was a body, a dead body laying on the floor here, a corpse, and I yelled at it, hey, get up. Or I walked up to it and I I grabbed the hand and I tried to pull and said, get up, stand up. It wouldn't respond, would it? Because it's dead. It's unable to respond to outside stimuli. 
That's what something is when it's dead. It doesn't respond to stimuli. One of the ways you know that something is alive, according to scientists, is is that there's growth in it because it responds to the outside stimuli. A plant gets water to its roots and it responds to that water and takes it up in itself and therefore it grows. And John is saying that in the same way that human beings uh, or that, that a physical corpse is unable to respond to outside stimuli, you and I are unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. It wasn't part of our reading, but if you have a Bible, you can look at at the Gospel of John chapter 1. In verse 10, John says something very interesting. He says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. How interesting that he uses this word. He said they couldn't see him. John is saying that Jesus, the creator of the universe, you know, through him the world was made, so he's the creator of the universe. He is our God. He is the one in whose image we have been made. He was right in front of us. And we didn't respond to that. We didn't recognize that. We didn't accept that. We didn't realize that that was the truth. Or to put it another way, we didn't care. Here was God meeting his people in the flesh. He had punched a hole in that dividing line between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He had, the ideal had become real. The eternal had become temporal. The thing that the Greeks, remember last week, the thing that the Greeks were looking for and longing for had finally come and we didn't respond to it. We didn't care. Now notice, Jesus is not, or John is not talking about Jesus as a baby. John is not saying, this is what John is not saying, that when Jesus was in the manger, or he was a little baby with his mom and dad in Egypt, or he was a little toddler when he was growing up in Nazareth, that the people around him didn't recognize that this was God. Remember, John wrote this, this, uh, this account of the life of Christ in nine, around 90 AD, so very, very late. This is after the life and ministry of Christ. And what he's saying is, is that, that people saw Jesus do miracles. They saw him do incredible things like raise the dead. Like take a little tiny bit of food and feed an entire crowd out of it. They saw him preach and teach with incredible authority. They heard him speak the truth in a way that they had never heard before. They, 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 heard, they, they noticed a wisdom in him that was beyond anything that they had experienced before. And yet, they didn't recognize him as who he said he was. Now, have you ever wondered about that? Think about this. Like, imagine if you lived at the time of Christ. Have you ever done this? I've done this, okay? I've done this because I am a, I'm a proud, proud man. <laughs> I've read the Gospels, and I'm reading along, and Jesus does something astounding, like he takes blind Bartimaeus, right, and gives him sight. Guy's been born blind, blind all his life. Everybody knows him as blind. Jesus gives him, gives him sight, and uh, the leaders of the synagogue, they don't believe that Jesus gave this man sight. Somehow he's able to see now, and he's like, who, who gave you sight? I don't know, this guy gave me sight. I think his name is Jesus. Oh, that's blasphemy, that can't be true. And I read that and I think, you guys are idiots. How is it possible that you could be part of the crowd that sees Jesus take a couple of fish, a few loaves of bread, 
gives thanks, starts breaking it off. Upwards of 15,000 people are like stuffed with food. And yet they don't believe that he's the Messiah. Don't you read these passages and think to yourself, what a bunch of idiots. Like if I had been there, I would have recognized Jesus for who he is. Uh, 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 Not according to John. Why didn't they recognize him? Because they were dead. Not physically, spiritually. They're experiencing, they're witnessing all this incredible stuff from Jesus and they cannot respond to it. They're, They're incapable. Listen, what does that look like today? Here's a very good person. They are moral. They are ethical. They are compassionate. Maybe this is a coworker of yours. Maybe this is a friend of yours. Maybe this is a family member of yours. If you were to look at their books compared to your books, you would see that they give way more money to charity than you do. They're part of the Rotary Club, or maybe they're a big brother or a big sister, or they go down to a soup kitchen and they help out all the time. When you're out in the yard and you're pulling on that stupid snowblower and it won't work, he's the one or she's the one, let's not be sexist, who comes across and says, oh, here, let me help you out, and able, is able to figure it out and, and fires it up for you. They're always willing to help you. They're just great people. Better people than some of the Christians that you know. Maybe, if you're honest, better than you. I have a friend who... uh, Oh, no, that's an illustration for later. Stick a pin in that about my friend. But here's the thing. When it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to things about Jesus Christ, they think those things are silly. They think the story of Jesus recorded here in Scripture, that story is a silly story. It's a myth. It's an old wives' tale like many of the others. Or they think it's offensive. They think, ha, that he had to die on a cross and be slaughtered and blood had to be spilt to pay for sins. Oh, that's disgusting. Or they just think it's irrelevant. They go, hmm, fascinating stuff. But it doesn't really have anything to do with me. And maybe sometimes most terrifying, they actually assent They say, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Jesus story. But when you actually look at their lives, you don't see the spiritual life in them. You don't see the growth. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is they're a good person. They've done great things, but now they are in the midst of suffering. They're facing an extremely difficult thing. And you come to them with the comfort of the gospel and you say to them, listen, God is in control of the universe. He has authority over absolutely everything that's happening. He has not left you. He is present here. He is working good in your life in the moment of this. And it does nothing for them. They're anxious or they're worried. They have concerns. And you come to them with the story of Jesus saying in the Sermon of the Mount to the, to the people who are listening, listen, who of you can, can add one hour to your life by worrying? Don't you know that the birds of the field, they do not store up in barns? And yet your Heavenly Father makes sure they have something to eat. Look at the flowers of the field, they do not spin. And yet they are clothed in more splendor than Solomon. You say these words to them and they kind of go, eh. They're not responding to the stimuli, you see. They're spiritually dead. And so, as we said in verse 4, in him was life, 
And that life was the light of all mankind. See, Jesus came to bring life, not physical life, but spiritual life. What, what John will go on to call eternal life. You know, there's a spot in John 17 where Jesus is praying to his father. And it's a beautiful passage in scripture, the high priestly prayer. Because what you get is you get to eavesdrop on a divine conversation between God and his divine son. And in that prayer, Jesus says something absolutely astounding. He says, this is eternal life. He defines eternal life. And you know how he defines it? He says that, that they may know you, the one true God, and your son whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing the one true God and his son whom he has sent. That's life. Now, how is that life? Well, think about this. There's an order of being in life. A plant is alive and it has a certain level of existence. But you would never say that a plant has the same kind of level of existence as your dog, right? And, and in the same way, a human being, you would never say, has the same level of a existence as the dog. If a, if a human being acts like an animal, we would say, oh, look at them, they're acting like a beast. Or, or if a human being experiences a terrible injury, let's say, and they end up, in a veg- they end up like with, with just barely any brain waves and, and they're not responding much to stimuli outside of them, we say they're in a vegetative state. And so we understand that there are levels to life. To our, to our experience of the reality around us. There is, and John is saying that Jesus came to bring a life that is beyond the natural life that you and I experience, that all human beings experience. There's a, put it this way, there's a qualitative difference between the life that Jesus brings and the life that we experience without him. And this is important for us to understand because oftentimes Christians will think of this concept of eternal life and they'll think, yeah, well, eternal life, that's something I'm going to get after I die. That's going to be for me in heaven. But, but it's so much more than that. John is saying, look, we talk about the new birth, right? We talk about Christians being born again. What are we talking about? We're talking about experiencing that new life here and now. A higher level of existence. I know that may sound new agey to you. It may sound kind of weird to you, you know, transcend. I read a really fascinating article. Oh, I can't go down this rabbit trail, but I'll just tell you. I read a fascinating article yesterday in the, uh, the Atlantic or the New York Times. I can't remember which one it was, but about how people are taking, um, are, are taking drugs. I can't remember which one this was. It's like a, an extreme form of LSD in order to experience transcendence. People are longing for it. They know there's a reality beyond the reality they can see. And so they're doing whatever they can to have an experience of that reality beyond what they see. And that's precisely the thing that John is talking about. You have an experience, a deeper experience of life because Jesus has given you life. There's a place in Ezekiel where God promises his people, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. It's like the story of Pinocchio, who was a wooden boy who wanted to be a real boy. And John is saying that Jesus brings that into us. You you become more human, in a sense. Jesus, or or another way of putting it is, Jesus gives uh, gives you back your humanity that was lost because of the fall. 
Well, how on earth does he do that? That's the second word. And that's what the second word is for. So life. Jesus brings a higher experience of reality. A higher order of being to us. We live beyond the flesh. You know how the Apostle Paul talks about how, how we, we live in the flesh or we live, we live by the flesh or we live by the Spirit. He talks about this in places like Galatians chapter 5. And flesh is, is in the Bible, according to Dallas Willard, and I think he's right, is, is describing an, an almost lower order of existence. We live a fleshly existence, but Jesus came to give us that spiritual existence that was lost in our rebellion. And the way he does that is through the light. Now, what does he mean? Now, light, it's an important word and a, and a huge metaphor in, uh, in the Gospel of John. In fact, in the entire Bible. Uh, we're going to limit ourselves to two aspects of that metaphor this morning. First of all, what does light do? Light exposes what is hidden. And especially, it exposes sin and evil. You know the old saying, you know, when you were young, you are a teenager or a young adult or something, and your parents said, nothing good happens after midnight. Or maybe you were like, you had really strict parents, so it was like nothing good happens after 9 p.m. <laughs> it's because we know that, that, that under the cover of darkness, sin happens. In secrecy, sin operates. It always wants to operate in the shadows. It always wants to operate in the darkness. It doesn't want to be exposed. To be exposed is bad. Everybody loves John chapter 3, verse 16, don't they? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. I wish people would just keep reading after that. I guess you can't fit it on a billboard at a sports game. But listen to what John continues to say in verses 19 and 20. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear of what? That their deeds might be exposed. Jesus came into this world as the light, the life who is the light. But when that light shone among us, we, we, we were like, like skunks and raccoons and mice and maybe rats, when you shine the light on them in the darkness, what do they do? They scurry away. Jesus, John actually brings this up in verse 5 when he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now that word overcome literally actually means put out. Put out. See, the darkness of sin rages against the light. It doesn't want to be exposed in the light of Jesus Christ. People hated Jesus' holiness. He didn't even have to say anything. People would would be around Jesus and they would find themselves uncomfortable because the light of his holiness would would shine upon their lives and their moral guilt and they they would experience that guilt and they would know that guilt and they would hate Jesus for exposing them to their own guilt. Have you never had this 
happened to you? This is, the, this is where I got to illustrate with my friend. I have a friend who uh, has a bunch of kids, and he's a very involved father. And uh, there was a period of time where he was posting constantly on Facebook all these activities he did with his kids. And he's a great guy. He's a terrific guy. Good friend of mine upstanding man. But man, I hated these Facebook posts. You scroll through these Facebook posts and be like, I suck. I am nothing as a father compared to this guy. Look, he does that with them and he does that with them and he does that with them. He's always engaged in the lives of his kids and half the time I am like thinking about other things. Made me feel guilty. Have you never been with someone who, who just by virtue of their character, it irks you? Haven't you ever been around someone you would consider holier than thou? They've never once said a thing about their judgment of your behavior, but you can feel it and you project it. The light of Jesus exposes our sin. His moral purity shines brightly and it shows us where we have fallen short. But here's the thing. It doesn't just do that. It also illumines. Light doesn't just expose, light illumines. And this is where you start to see the change and experience the life that Jesus brings, okay? Exposure and illumination. Because what Jesus does when, he, when you are born again and he gives you this eternal life, what he does is he exposes you to a life of greater wonder, of, of, of greater richness and of greater adventure than you had never known possible. Because what he does is, is he opens more of reality to you. Let me explain what I mean. How much knowledge of the reality around it does a vegetable have? When you're in your vegetable garden and you're weeding around a tomato plant, how much knowledge of your presence do you think that tomato plant has? I'm sure it feels light and it knows when rain is coming. Yes, of course it knows light because plants will often like gravitate toward the light. If you have an indoor house plant, you'll see that happen. So they're aware of temperature, they're aware of sunshine versus cloud, that kind of thing. Now how much awareness of reality does a dog have? A dog realizes you exist, understands you as their owner, knows that you care about them in some way, typically. And so it has a greater experience of reality and, 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 and even the size of the world than a vegetable does. Now, how much, how much more does a human being have an experience of reality than a dog? Dog can't think about aesthetic things. A dog doesn't understand ethics. It just acts according to its nature and according to its instincts. But you have the ability to reason and to think things out and to find beauty, etc. So obviously you have a much higher order of existence and, and understanding of reality, awareness of reality than a dog does. And John is saying that a Christian has a higher understanding of reality than a natural human being does. Now, that may sound offensive to anybody here who's not a Christian, but this is the picture that John is painting. Listen to, to understand this. Imagine you're in a very dark room and you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's dark. 
And you start fumbling around the room and you start stumbling around the room and and you touch things and you feel things and and you try to take in as much information through your various senses as you can. And you have experiences of that room. You say, oh, this thing, there's something here that turns and oh, this thing is hard and oh, I just touched something that's kind of soft. I wonder where I am. And then somebody flicks on the light and you discover you're in the Royal Ontario Museum. And you've been fumbling around one of the exhibits and you've had some experience of the things that are there. But now that you can see what it is, you, you discover there is so much more than, than you knew prior to, to having your eyes open. You say to yourself, I never saw that before. I never, I never knew that before. And John says to be a Christian is to do that. To say, I never thought of it like that before. I never looked at it that way before. I never realized that before. Now understand this. Christians are not smarter. It's not what John is saying at all. We're fools who need life breathed into us and who need the light turned on for us. We stumble around just like anybody else. But when Jesus comes into your life, he gives you life and he lights up your reality. You're not smarter than anybody else, but you do see things differently than others in such a way that there is a reality they cannot grasp. Let me give you an illustration. The secular story, which is coming out of favor more and more actually, but if you're my age or older, so early 40s and older, You grew up in a secular age that basically said, look, the physical world around us is all there is. There is no spiritual reality behind all of that. There is no spiritual realm that you can have access to. All you can see and experience is what you can see with your eyes. And look, at the the end, when you die, after you die, you rot. You have no soul that goes to any other place lives on in another sphere or realm. You just, you're worm food. And so every one of us, if if we're lucky, we get about 80 years, give or take. And so what you need to do is you need to use those years well. This is your one shot. You got one shot at life, one shot at existence. You got to use those years well and enjoy life. Get out of it whatever you can. I heard one person say, um, uh, oh, forget it. I can't remember what he said. It was really funny, though. You got to reach your goals. And you got you to gotta get rid of anything that stands in the way of reaching your goals. Okay? Pretty fair assessment. And here's a young woman who unexpectedly gets pregnant. And she goes to a counselor. And the counselor pulls out the stats. And the stats for a single parenthood, single motherhood, they can be pretty rough. You know, higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of depression, uh, lower, typically a much lower uh, economic status. Over the course of a lifetime, you make less money and you live in tougher uh, conditions. Life is hard. And so the young woman considers an abortion. 
And you've got to understand that from that perspective, if you're coming from that perspective, that makes sense. This is not a woman who is cruel and thinks that life is, is unimportant, who stands up with placards and, and without any kind of thought just says, my body, my choice, without really wrestling with the issue. Oh no, the, the issue is real, it is personal, it is agonizing, and it is utterly heart-wrenching. But her consideration makes sense given the story of reality that she's been told. But what if she's a Christian? And her eyes have been opened to a different reality and to another reality. She says, wait a minute, space and time is beautiful. There is a world of beauty and opportunity in this place that I find myself now. But that's not all there is. There is a world behind that world and a world beyond that world and a future behind that world. And what's inside me is not just a life, but a soul like mine. That will live on in eternity. And, and I believe that it is my responsibility to give them an opportunity to hear of this grand story in this life. And we will live our lives together in this place. And yes, it may be hard and it may be difficult. But what is 80 years of suffering in comparison to billions and billions of years of majesty and glory and unfettered joy beyond our wildest dreams? Do you see? It affects how you think of everything. Or maybe here's a young couple and their marriage is going through a rocky patch and they're thinking, man, this, this is tough. And if they live by the secular story, they say to themselves, look, life is short. Life is too short to be in an unhappy marriage. We need to find joy. Maybe we ought to just cut our losses but if they're a Christian, if they believe the message of the Bible and the story of Scripture, they go back to their vows and they say, wait a minute, behind the world we see is a world of virtue and of principles that are enduring, far more enduring than our fleeting emotions now. Things like troth, things like faithfulness and commitment and fidelity and long-suffering. Why do they think differently? Because Jesus shines his light into their lives to a reality beyond what they see and know just with their natural perception. By the way, if there's any couples who are troubled, study after study after study after study has shown that couples who choose to stay together five years from that moment are far happier than those that have given up and called, called it quits. If you don't believe me, ask Mark. He knows all about this stuff. Now, here's the thing. You will not see that until you enter the light, friends. Until then, you're fumbling around in the dark and you're, you're finding the gospel message foolishness or repulsive. You cannot receive it. Just like... The people who stood before the cross of Jesus Christ. What did people say as he was hanging on that cross, dying for their sins? They mocked him. They made fun of him. They laughed at him. They said, well, there's your revolution now. The light was being snuffed out. The maker, the creator of the universe was hanging on a cross and he was being killed. And you know, Luke says that for three hours... 
As Jesus hung on that cross, the sun itself was blotted out and the world was plunged into darkness because the light of the world was being extinguished. The light of the world by darkness slain. And yet, in the most remarkable irony of all, as the light was being snuffed out, the darkness was being defeated. Because on that first Easter, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. Now, the question is, does that story move you? Maybe you're not ready to bite down whole hog just yet, but you're moved by the story. You're attracted to the light of Jesus. You find yourself strangely stirred and wanting to know more and wanting to know him better and wanting to live out of that promised joy that he promises. If that's happening to you, that's a sign of life. Don't snuff it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life that is ours in Jesus and for the light he brings to our existence. Jesus, we pray that you would make us long to live in your light. Make us not afraid Not afraid, not afraid to have our sin exposed by your light. But as the sun bleaches stains on concrete, let your light and your blood wash us clean. Open our eyes to a reality beyond what we see with our physical eyes. And may we bask in that and live out of the strength and the conviction and the hope that comes from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I forgot to mention at the beginning of the service, I was going to and I forgot that we do, we do have opportunity on occasion to, to take questions with respect to the, the sermon. And uh, if you have any questions, you are free to ask them. Uh, either raise your hand and ask them, or you can text me 905-517-0936. I know I'm saying this now, and so unless you're like really quick-fingered like my kids, you might not zip it off in time, or maybe you can't think of a question. That's okay. But just remember that for for the future, that we we do take an opportunity for questions often, and, and if you have any, you can ask them. And certainly you can ask any questions you might have right now. Okay, don't feel bad. I'll feel bad. No, I won't feel bad either. All right, as the worship team comes forward, we're going to prepare ourselves to go to the table together. Brothers and sisters, one of the means by which we have access, we we get to experience this reality beyond our physical world is actually through the supper. 
It is a mysterious thing, but it is a beautiful thing. That the Lord gives us bread and cup. And with our physical senses, we get to experience a spiritual reality. Because as we eat and drink, our Lord Jesus feeds us spiritually with his body and his blood. It is a mysterious thing, but it is what scripture teaches and what we believe. And so if you are here this morning, or this afternoon, I guess, and you love Jesus and you have united yourself to him by faith and have joined his church, uh, we encourage you to join us around this table and be fed by him and experience the mystery that is the Lord's Supper. If that's not your situation, you're new to the Christian faith, you're exploring it, perhaps you are living... uh, in willful sin, meaning that you know there are things in your life that God is calling you to lay down, but you're saying, no, I don't want to give that up to you. I want to hold on to that and do my own thing. Then we say, as a matter of your own integrity, you ought not eat and drink at this time. But you are certainly encouraged to join, to meet me after church, text me, you know, everybody on the internet now knows my phone number. Um, I'd love to talk with you more about this and see if the day may come where you can eat and drink with God's people. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And I'm going to try to do that too. And he gave thanks and he offered it to his friends in that upper room so many centuries ago. And he has faithfully offered it to his friends down through the centuries. And he is here now offering it to you, his friends, in this room. And he says... This is my body. It is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after dinner, he took a cup. And he gave thanks and offered it to his friends in that upper room so long ago. And today, he offers it to you, his friends in this room. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the Apostle Paul tells us, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ given for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you. Please stand with me as we sing our closing song.
blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah.
Let's lift up our hearts to God and receive his parting blessing. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace and sit down.